This is Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Jillian Parks. With me today is Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment, which can be found at AmericanCommitment.org. Welcome, Mr. Kirpin. Great to be with you. Yay, we're so excited to have you here. Um, I'm sure everybody who's listening has heard about Biden's student bailout plan with student loans. Um, Well, Phil Kirpin wrote an op-ed, which can also be found at AmericanCommitment.org, entitled, Oklahoma and Missouri Can and Must Stop Biden's Student Loan Bailout. Um, so I have to start by asking you, Mr. Kirpin, uh, can the president spend an estimated $500 million to $100 trillion without approval from Congress? Well, the Constitution that I'm familiar with uh, gives Congress the exclusive power of the purse. So the idea of the president spending, you know, half a trillion or a trillion dollars uh, essentially by uh, creating out of thin air uh, a new government program using old laws off the shelf uh, is pretty offensive to the Constitution as I understand it, and he should not be permitted to do that. Of course, the challenge uh, is who's going to stop him. Congress hasn't shown any willingness to step up and stop him, and so it may well fall to the courts, uh, but so far none of the litigation has been able to reach the merits because it's challenging to show that you're harmed by the president giving money away, and uh, that's, I think, the uh, that that's I think what's going to determine you know whether the you know whether he actually gets stopped or not is whether somebody can survive the standing analysis. Who do you recommend find standing at this point in time um, to take up a course a case against him? Well. Um, the, the time is short as we speak. There are a number of cases uh, that have been filed, um, but the one that has the, uh, the greatest likelihood of success, I think, is the one that was filed by six conservative states, including one of the two key states uh, in, by my analysis, mm-hmm. uh, which is the state of Missouri. Um, and that case, they actually lost at the district court level, um, but it's on appeal right now mm-hmm. and uh, to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And there's an emergency stay in place, and we could get a decision from the Eighth Circuit any day. And uh, you know, if the Eighth Circuit also rules against the states, they could try another emergency appeal that would go to Justice Kavanaugh. And basically, their argument is that um, because the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority is an agency of the state of Missouri, uh, they can sue on its behalf, and uh, that agency. It stands to lose, you know, millions and millions of dollars in servicing fees because they're actually the largest servicer of direct federal loans, uh, you know, including, of course, you know, the, you know, millions of loans that the president would discharge uh, if the stay were lifted. And at the district court level, the judge said, well, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority would probably have standing to sue, but they're not really the same thing as the state, and so I'm not going to let the state sue. And so that's really the issue that's on appeal right now is, you know, can, a, a, can the state sue on behalf of a state agency that has kind of budget autonomy and uh, some other features that make it a little bit quasi-governmental as opposed to, you know, clearly governmental. And so that's the issue on appeal. Um, I think that if you know, if the states lose on that issue, you might think, well, okay, they could just file again under the name of the agency. Mohila could be the plaintiff of the lawsuit, and that's true, except we're almost out of time here, because the government has basically said, the Biden administration has said, basically, the moment that the stay is lifted from the courts, they're going to knock down the balances and all the, you know, the 10 million plus accounts that have already signed up for this. So a lot of money could already be out the door by the time, you know, another court gets to review it. What is Biden's legal rationale for launching this loan forgiveness in the first place? 
Well, what they're doing is they're saying that uh, there was a law passed in 2003 called the HEROES Act that was supposed to be sort of part of the war on terror and post-9-11. The idea of it was if you've got people who are engaged in counterterrorism or in overseas military operations and they've got student loans, the Secretary of Education ought to be able to give them a break on that so they're not worried about handling their student loans while they're dealing with, you know, those terror-related emergencies. That was the original rationale logic behind it. Mm-hmm. And what they're saying is kind of, hey, this law says emergency, COVID's an emergency, and so in order to make everyone whole for their losses during the COVID emergency, we're going to do mass student loan discharge, you know, for 40 million people, which... Uh, is a huge stretch of what the law actually says and probably on the merits would have been rejected anyway, but I think is especially strained because we just had a decision from the Supreme Court in West Virginia versus EPA where they said, you know, if you're going to start a major new government program, you need to have clear direction from Congress to do it, not just, you know, finding, in, you know, finding a loophole in an old law. And so I think they're on very, very shaky legal ground uh, on the merits. But, you know, I think the real strategy from the Biden administration, that's their stated rationale. They say mm-hmm. 2003 Heroes Act gives them the authority. But I think their real strategy was just to do this without, with as little in, in actual formal description of the program as possible. So there's no guidance, there's no rulemaking. They basically did it through a press release and a frequently asked questions website. And then they morph the program to try to moot standing so that people can't challenge them. So I think their real legal strategy is to avoid getting sued. And and that way they think they can get away with it. So what kind of ways have we seen the Biden administration randomly changing details of the plan to prevent legal issues from arising? Well, there, there are two things that they changed on the fly to moot lawsuits. Uh, the first lawsuit that was filed was filed by an individual who uh, already was making maximum payments under an income-driven repayment plan and uh, was going to qualify for public service loan forgiveness uh, within a couple of years. And so uh, he had no benefit from what Biden was doing because his loan he was already making maximum payments and his loan was already going to be forgiven under a different program. But uh, the Biden program actually increased his state tax liability in the state of Indiana because uh, Indiana exempts public service loan forgiveness uh, from taxation, but has no exemption for what Biden's doing. And so he would have had a a higher state income tax bill as a result of this, and that gave him uh, standing to sue on the whole program. And uh, when he brought the lawsuit, they said, oh, we're adding an opt-out. So instead of it being automatic, uh, now we're adding an opt-out for people who don't want it, and that way someone in that situation will not have to pay uh, you know, the state income tax. So that mooted that lawsuit. Uh, then there was a lawsuit by a number of bondholders that basically said, look, um, the incentive to consolidate out of private student loans and into a federal loan so that the federal loan can be discharged under this new program uh, erodes the value of the bonds that we hold. And uh, the way that the Biden administration reacted to that is they said, okay, from September 29th onward, consolidation, consolidated loans don't qualify for discharge. Now you have no standing to sue us. And they mooted that lawsuit. And so they've had two significant program changes uh, on the fly solely for the purpose of trying to dodge uh, litigation. What are the long-term ramifications of letting this go unchallenged? Well, they're pretty bad, I think, uh, both economically and uh, legally and constitutionally. Uh, From an economic standpoint, uh, the expectation will be that uh, 
you know, loans don't have to be paid. First, first of all, this program alone is going to add, you know, half a trillion to a trillion dollars in additional federal spending. It's unlikely that they will raise taxes to pay for that, which means they'll print the money, uh, which is another ratchet up in inflation at a time where, where people really can't afford that. But also, I think it, it'll sort of be precedent-setting. There'll be an expectation that student loans will be forgiven on a somewhat regular basis uh, when it's politically advantageous for the president. So, of course, I think uh, it, college administrators are not dummies. They'll jack up tuition even higher than they already have because they'll make the pitch to students. You're never going to actually pay this. It'll be dumped on taxpayers sooner or later. So, you know, don't worry. Just sign up for bigger loans and uh, don't worry about it, especially in graduate programs, which uh, do not have limitations on the amount that you can borrow. I think we might see dramatic increases uh, in tuition with the expectation that people are never going to pay it. It'll be, you know, forgiven at some point in the future, and maybe expressly so if the president's changes to income-driven repayment uh, also go through, which is he's pursuing on a slightly separate track. So I think the economic costs are going to be staggering. From a legal constitutional standpoint, this sets a really, really dangerous precedent that a president can spend money, can give things away, can give benefits away, because when he gives things away, it's hard to challenge it. It's hard to have an injured party who can challenge it in court. And so you can do lawless things, and just because it's difficult for anyone to, f- to find standing to challenge it, uh, you can get away with it. And I think, you know, it's likely, you know, Republicans might see that and say, great, we're going to cut people's taxes without a vote of Congress next time. There's a Republican administration and dare someone to come up with a way to challenge it. And you could see, uh, you know, this continuing with more spending when Democrats are in without, you know, approval in Congress, more tax cuts when Republicans are in. And essentially, you disrupt the whole constitutional system. You sideline Congress from what's supposed to be its, you know, most significant role, which is holding the power of the purse. And so I think uh, it really has to be challenged, really has to be stopped. If uh, this litigation is not successful and this money is pushed out the door, I really think it's incumbent on the next Congress to put the brakes on this, uh, you know, to the extent they can, and to make clear that they're going to, you know, assert their power of the purse and not allow this to continue or to set, you know, a precedent going forward. For those of you just tuning in, this is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Jillian Parks, and I'm currently talking with President of American Commitment Phil Kirpin on his most recent op-ed entitled Oklahoma and Missouri Can and Must Stop Biden's Student Loan Bailout. Uh, Mr. Kirpin, the action in your ed op- or op-ed is localized to Missouri and Oklahoma. Is this action something that can be extended nationwide? Well, I think those are the two states that uh, have the best argument standing because they're the two states that have state agencies that service direct federal loans uh, that will be discharged under this program, which gives them a standing to sue, in my judgment. Um, you know, we'll see. We'll see uh, ultimately on appeal whether that's true for Missouri. I'm disappointed that Oklahoma has not brought a lawsuit. I think mm-hmm. it's a missed opportunity there. And, uh, you know, if you've got any listeners that have friends or family in Oklahoma, that they ought to contact the governor and the attorney general and tell them to get off the sidelines as soon as possible. Uh, but from a national standpoint, I think that uh, it's less about litigation than it is about getting a Congress that's willing to fight back. And, you know, this should be an issue in every election this year is, you know, you want to go to Congress. Do you think Congress it should exercise its prerogative, should defend itself as the branch that has the power of the purse, or should Congress sit on its hands and let the president spend an extra trillion dollars of, you know, unauthorized, unappropriated taxpayer money? Uh, I think that's crucial. And so I would urge everyone everywhere to make this an issue in races for Congress, for the House and Senate, and then after the election, to put some real pressure on Congress, you know, to step up and to stop this, to put language in the next government funding bill that puts the brakes on this program. Can you expound upon the constitutional language behind power of the purse? 
Yeah, I, I don't have the exact language in front of me, and I'll right. admit that I don't have it memorized, but it, it <laughs> says something like, you know, that all money that's drawn from the Treasury uh, has to be by appropriation of Congress uh, with legislation starting in the House. And, um, you know, obviously that's not the case here. This is not being done through legislation unless you believe they're, you know, veneer thin excuse that you know congress authorized this all back in 2003 which i think is plainly uh not the case and so um the the way the constitution safeguards taxpayer dollars is that the branch that's closest to the people the house of representatives originates all spending bills and then they have to be approved by the senate as well presented to the president and and so forth and so you know if you don't follow that process if you you have essentially one man rule which is not the constitutional system is there anything the individual can do to participate in the opposition, or is it solely up to lending agencies and states? Yeah, not much in terms of litigation, unfortunately. Uh, taxpayer standing has been rejected as a theory already. That's already gone up all, all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they've said no dice on that. They've generally been hostile uh, to the idea of individual taxpayers bringing lawsuits against you know any government action, and that's, uh, that's the case on this one as well. Uh, and so I think in terms of individual action, you can't really do anything in terms of litigation, but you certainly, um, you know, can try to hold candidates, uh, you know, feet to the fire, ask where they stand on this, and, and then after the election, try to get some pressure on Congress to act. But in terms of litigation, no, I don't really see that uh, individuals can do much on that side. What would you say to college students at public universities with student loan debt that are in favor of this bailout and don't really... Um, think in terms of how it's going to affect them in the future? Well, um, you know, anyone who's the direct beneficiary of government program tends to like that government program, even if it you know, doesn't have very good overall cost benefit and uh, other people are going to pay more for it and so forth. So it's kind of hard to make the case against it to that individual. I would just say that, um, you know, you benefit from this round of it, but if this precedent's established, this is going to happen over and over and over again. It's going to cost you an enormous amount of money over your entire working life uh, for lots of other people, and it's going to create massive upward pressure on college tuitions. And that's going to be a big problem for you someday when you've got your own kids. And uh, you know, to, I'd try to encourage them to take a little bit broader perspective. But I do understand, you know, if you're getting that, if you're getting the benefit of ten or twenty thousand dollars from the government. Mm -hmm you're going to prefer to get it than to not get it. And obviously that's what the Biden administration is counting on as well, mm -hmm. trying to do this ahead of the election. Let's say hypothetically his bailout does pass through and, and student loan forgiveness um, actually happens. What is the next step for um, Republicans um, in fighting against the kind of ramifications that you outlined earlier? Well, I think they've I think they've got to pass legislation that uh, puts a stop to it, puts a break on it. So as much money is out the door, you're probably not going to get back, but you can stop more from going. And then I hope they'll tackle the underlying issue in a way that that's actually works and is much more productive. I mean, I would focus on the people who are really in a huge hole that they can't ever get out of, and uh, that would mean reforming bankruptcy laws uh, to make it easier to discharge student loans in bankruptcy. Um, I would not do blanket loan forgiveness for people making a quarter million dollars like uh, the president's doing because mm -hmm. you're, that's, you know, you're spending an awful lot of government money on people who don't need it. Um, but I would reform the bankruptcy laws. I would think, I think there should be a waiting period of about seven to 10 years after that. I think most student loans should be dischargeable in bankruptcy, but I think, and this is the crucial part of any reform. And I would urge Congress to look very seriously at this. I think that if loans are discharged in bankruptcy, some percentage of that loan maybe a quarter of it, maybe half, something like that. Um, the 
university or college that that person attended should be on the hook for some significant portion of that loan so that they've got their incentives aligned to make sure that the people who attend their institutions actually graduate, actually get jobs, have enough income uh, to avoid bankruptcies uh, and, and sort of keep everyone to have their incentives aligned, have an incentive to keep loan balances down rather than up uh, from the university side. And so I think bankruptcy reform is where the focus should be. Uh, if Republicans really want to solve the issue, but they've got to think through it, I think, in a way uh, that will reverse the upward pressure we have on tuitions to, to downward pressure. Are there any other reforms that you're in favor of in terms of um, the costs of tuition or the need for students to be taking out as much as they are in loans? Well, I would also like to see student lending move back to the private sector. I think that, uh, you know, when government took it over, when they nationalized student lending in 2010, they said this was going to be a huge source of revenue for the government and it was going to help pay for Obamacare. And I think they said it was going to raise $60 billion. And, of course, just a few years later, they were losing money, and now they're going to potentially lose enormous amounts of money intentionally uh, with this mass discharge. I just think uh, it's pretty clear that this is not something that government is good at. Uh, I would like to see student lending move back. Uh, to the private sector, and uh, sort of sort of clear the books of these of these federal loans as well. I'd, I'd like to see them sold off uh, and get government out of that business. I think that the massive amount of subsidization that we've had of higher education has mostly served to raise tuitions and to grow the number of administrators, and uh, it, it has not on, on net been a positive uh, for higher education. And so I'd like to see a broader rethink of sort of all of the federal grant and loan programs with an eye towards, uh, you know, how do you make sure that you're you're helping people who need help but you're not just passing, uh, you're not, it's not just being passed through into higher tuitions and more administrators and so on. And so that would be my focus. Um, but certainly, I, I think that the federal takeover of student lending uh, has not done anything they told us it was going to do, and, and, and uh, it should be reversed. Is there anything else you'd like to add or that I failed to touch on um, from your op-ed or your opinions on this? No, I think that, I think that mostly covers it. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly when this is going to air, but we could get a decision from the Eighth Circuit on the appeal, you know, any day this week. And mm -hmm. so, uh, some, in, in, we'll, we'll see. We, we may know sooner rather than later which way this is going. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much. Our guest has been Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment, and I'm Jillian Parks on Radio Free Hillsdale, one one point seven FM. Mm -hmm.